My name is Doug, if I have not met you yet. Grateful to have you here today, and I'm grateful to be with you again. I guess the last time I spoke to you was back in March, and uh, I got invited back. So I guess that's a good sign, right? You get invited back to do something, it, it means it, was, it went okay. Or Steve was on number 25 person, and he was like, pull you all I got, please show up. So I'm showing up this morning. And uh, as you've probably seen already on your, on your bulletin, we're talking about no regrets today. And what does that look like in our life? We're going to weave in some scripture today. We're going to weave in some stories today. And we're going to talk about what it looks like to live a life of no regrets. Before I get started today, I do need to recognize someone very special and important in my life. Because without her, I would not be here standing before you to chat today. And she's been praying for me this week. And she'll be watching the message this afternoon. If you didn't know, the message is online. You hear both the podcast and the video on our website at 360church.com. My mom. It's her birthday today. So you'll see her up here. Here she is. So mom, online, via video, I love you. I thank you for having me. So there you go. I'm her favorite son. She's got three kids. I'm her favorite. So she won't say that, but I know the truth. I'm her favorite. <laughs> well, how many of you here today, as you think about regrets, how many of you here today have something in your lifetime that you've regretted? Let's just a quick show of hands. Okay, hold on a second. Keep them up. Let me see. There's a few with no hands up. Come on, liars. We've all regretted something, right? We've had opportunities in our life where we went, ah, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? Why didn't, ah, regrets, we all have them. So I want to get your mind going here just a little bit this morning as I sent our own Chris Hartman, who's in charge of our videos. He puts all these great testimonials together. I sent him out on the road this past week, and I said, go find some peeps who have regrets. So watch what Chris put together. Probably, probably too many to share, but I used to have a lot of regrets, yeah. Yes, um, waiting to have kids at a um, later age, therefore not being able to have any more. Yes, I, I could have been a better person. I could have done more for people, and but I served in the military for many, many years, and uh, I think I did my share. I do have only one, actually, so I'm, I guess I'm pretty blessed. Uh, I wish I would, was um, much more tolerant and much more patient with my daughter when she was little. Even knowing some things about the truth earlier on, not really um, adhering, them, adhering to them and, uh, I guess, applying them and living by them earlier on in my life. Hmm. So maybe some of those ring true for you. You go, ah, you know what that reminds me of. Or, yeah, that's me. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to work through that today. And I want you to leave today with an opportunity to go, well, how can I live my life without having regrets? Now, some of you go, come on, that's impossible. Okay, I want to set the bar high for us. You'll never have at the end of your days nothing you haven't regretted. But I really want you to know, as you continue to walk through life, I think there's a pathway that we can begin to take from God's Word and from examples set before us that we can truly live a life with less regrets, for sure. 
One of mine was, as I think about uh, my mother, wow, she put up with a lot. Uh, <laughs> when I was 18, one of my regrets, um, my friend Mark and I, best friends, I had my Monte Carlo, he had his Cutlass, and we were always in competition together, and we were always racing together through the streets. So as we were racing cars, he would beat me, I would beat him, he would beat me, and one of the ways that I would try to get around him and beat him, he would always cut his car in front of me. So here we are racing down the streets this one particular time, and we came up to a hill, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to pass him on the hill because there's no way he's going to cut me off as we're going over a hill, right? And you're thinking, this guy is really stupid. <laughs> I was 18, okay? Give me a break. So I went around him. I made it up on top of the hill, cut in front of him, and I'm rejoicing, guys, going, yeah, I beat him. Guess who's the very first car that I see? Not the police. Mom and dad. Yeah. Mom and dad were the first car that greeted me as I'm driving by my friend racing at high speeds and dangerous situations. And my dad, I remember his look in the driver's seat was looking at me as I'm going past him. And I'm like, I am so dead. I don't remember how long I lost my car keys. I don't remember how long I got grounded, but it was something that I regretted for sure. Now, you may have regretted something else more serious in your life, but uh, many regrets, that's one of the ones that I have. So I'm not sure if mom ever heard that whole story. So mom, forgive me, please. All right. Well, as we look at regrets today, we're going to open up the scripture today, and you're going to see some scripture passages on the screen. If you've got your Bible here today, great. Uh, I've got my U version on my iPad because I just can't see that good anymore. So I got it right here, nice and bright for me. One of the words that we look at when we begin to take out this word regret, in the scripture, the Hebrew actually means a form of a deep sigh. That's what regret means in the ancient Hebrew. Just think, last time you did something you regretted, what did you do? Probably that, right? Yeah, deep regret can bring a sigh. And it can bring a lot of other things in our life that aren't welcome. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. First thing we're going to look at here is we take a look through the Scripture, and we're going to share three stories today, two from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament. The first one I'd like to share with you is about Simon Peter. And we'll open up to John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. Now, Jesus had just been arrested, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was being brought before Annas for his first trial, so to speak. And Peter was alongside. Now, do you remember what happened in the garden before they're getting to the courtyard for this specific trial? Remembering what happened, Peter was there in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter took out his knife and sliced off the ear of one of the guards. Awesome miracle. Jesus picks up the ear, places it back on the guy's ear, and heals him on the spot. Peter was there. So that's where we're heading into now. Right after that is what we're going to be reading in verse number 15 of John 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out 
and spoke to her who kept the door, and they brought Peter in. So he's getting now, guys, a first-hand look. He's got a front-row seat to what's happening with Jesus. Right after the garden, now he's in the courtyard. And after he was brought inside, what happens? The other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her, brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine, and Jesus answered them, I spoke openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met, and in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? And those who have heard me, what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with a palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it again. Number two, guys. He said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then again, a third time, immediately the rooster crowed after he denied him for the third time. Do you think Peter had some regret? Did you think he went, <sighs> right? I'm sure he did. We're going to share another story from the Scripture, and it actually comes from this same, uh, the same things that were happening around Jesus. And we're going to flip over to the book of Luke for a moment. Luke chapter 22, guys, and look at verses 1 through 6. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So stop there for a moment, and a couple of key things to remember about this. Don't feel too bad for Judas. <laughs> Judas heard temptation, Judas entertained the thought, and then Judas carried out the work. He was offered money. Remember how much he was offered, guys? 30 pieces of silver. I go, what's that? What? how much money is that? It was about a half a year's wages. So it was not chump change. About half a year's wages that Peter was, or that uh, Judas was given to betray Jesus. So as we see that in verse 6, what happened? So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So Judas, I'm sure, 
had some regrets, and we're going to visit the stories here in just a couple of minutes. But first, let's look at story number three. We're going to flip over to the Old Testament this time. And speaking of regrets in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to focus in, guys, on verses 1 through 5. Now, speaking of regrets, you think of King David, and a lot of you know the stories of King David, a lot of regrets in King David's life. And this specific one we're going to take a look at has to do with David, Bathsheba, and her husband named Uriah. As we look at these verses, a couple of key things I want you to be thinking about and maybe even take note of, what are some of the red flags that you begin to hear or see as we walk through these passages? And when it comes to sin and the tempter, what are some red flags that you begin to see as we walk through here? It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Red flag? <laughs> it should be. There's the first one for us that we look at and go, wait a second here. In the springtime, all the armies go out, led by the king, typically, right? And they go out and do battle, and they conquer, and they come back. David remained in Jerusalem by himself. Yikes. We're going to find out and see what else might be a red flag here as we walk through. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David stopped and went back to bed. What, is that not what it says? No. So, so what did he do? So David sent and inquired about the woman. Red flag. Red flag again. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Whoever was telling him that was trying to save him. Don't you know? Wait, you know that's... He kept going. He kept going. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived... So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Do you think David yet did the, and maybe a few choice words after he heard that? The rest of the story goes, guys, that when David heard that news, he actually sent to the front lines to pull Uriah off the battlefield and had him come home because he wanted Uriah to spend a little time with his wife. So when that baby came along, he'd go, hey, yeah, look, they were together. And not the case because Uriah was loyal to his men. And Uriah said, I will not go and be with my wife. In fact, he slept outside the king's palace door. So David's in a bind. Now what? So what does he do? He writes a letter to Joab, his general, and he sends it with Uriah. And he's actually going to have Uriah go to the front lines, and he instructs his general, send Uriah to the front lines so that he might be killed. What? Wow. 
And what happens? Sure enough, Joab gets the note, sends Uriah to the front lines, and he is killed in battle. Wow. Again, a story of deep regret for King David. So we're going to pause for a moment. We've heard three stories, and we're going to revisit these stories in just a minute and see what does repentance do and look like. Typically, when something happens to us that we regret, the response should be something along the lines of repentance. But oftentimes what happens when we do something that we regret, man, I wish I would have got away with more. Right? Let's be honest. Man, I wish I didn't get caught. Gosh, if I would have had just a couple more minutes, I would have had sorrow maybe, but not repentance. Regret, guys, regret is in place for us to have an opportunity to repent. That's what regret is for. And oftentimes we miss that connector with the Lord because we are too interested in what did I get out of this? Or I'm sorry I got caught. Look for a moment in Matthew 3, verse 8, a great verse when it comes to this whole idea of repentance. Matthew 3, 8 says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, what does that mean? When I do something bad, I regret it, and I'm getting right with the Lord, and I'm getting right with those that I've wronged. The fruit that comes from repentance should be change your behavior. Don't do that again. God, help me through your Holy Spirit not to do that. That's the fruit of repentance, guys. What happens if we try it on our own? Ah, sorry I got caught. I'm going to try to do better next time. Without the Holy Spirit of God, you are in a heap of trouble. You're in a heap of mess. You've got to have that opportunity to repent, and along with that comes that opportunity to watch the fruit come from your repentance. So looking back, we're going to zero back in on these three stories, guys, just for a moment. And what happened with the story of Peter? And we can look at what did repentance produce in Peter. Flip back over into the book of John, and we'll look at chapter 21 and verses 15 through 19. Setting this up for you a little bit, what had been happening, Jesus had risen from the dead, and he had shown himself to hundreds already, and he was spending some time with the disciples. So this was not the first time the disciples had seen Jesus. There had been other opportunities for the disciples to see him. The story goes, right before we read this passage, the story goes that Peter saw Jesus as he was out in the boat fishing, a couple hundred yards away. Peter threw on his garment, he dove into the sea, and he swam to the beach to see Jesus as he had come to prepare breakfast for them. Everybody else was like, what is up with him? Jumping in the water, he's going to, what? Everybody else, we'll just row, we'll get there when we get there. Guys, something happened to Peter, right? Something had happened to Peter with Jesus, and there was obviously some fruit that Jesus had shared with Peter and forgiveness, but we're going to see it really played out in this passage as Jesus comes and he really makes sure Peter understands forgiveness. So let's look at this verse here, John chapter 21, verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? 
He's surrounded by his peeps. He's surrounded by his brothers. And he's looking at all, he said, do you love me more than all these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him, what? A third time? A third time. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. A couple of key things about this passage, guys. Peter denied Jesus. Do you remember? Three times, right? Isn't it awesome how Jesus restores? Three times he asked Peter. Three times he asked Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. No, really. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Oh, right. I'm fully restoring you. Fully restoring you, Peter. Anybody know how Peter died? Peter was crucified. Yeah, and not just crucified. Peter was crucified upside down. So when we look at the fruit of repentance, was Peter all in after he repented? Absolutely. Crucified upside down because he didn't want to have anything that represented for him that was equal to Jesus. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way he was. I'll be crucified upside down. That's what Jesus was talking about in these last few verses here. Super significant, guys. And watching and seeing that fruit that can come from true repentance. How about our story of Judas? Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 27. Flip over there, and Matthew chapter 27, we'll take a look and see what happened with Judas. Verses 3 through 5. Judas was handed over to Pontius Pilate. A little bit of context there. So what had happened? Jesus was condemned to be crucified, and here's Judas probably having a bit of a guilty conscience. Verse number three, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed, and went and hanged himself. When regret is not followed with repentance, it will eat you up. Mentally, physically, how many of you have had unforgiveness or bitterness in your life that you have not given up? Judas was tempted. He followed his temptation. He took the bait and then he never truly had that repentance, and it ate him up. Guys, the scripture says when we have unconfessed sin in our lives, what happens? 
Your bones become brittle. The scriptures talk about drying up of the bones. That's not just a figurative piece of language. It happens physically in our bodies when we hold on to that anxiety. We hold on to bitterness. We hold on to unforgiveness. Not what the Lord desires for us. Finally, we're going to look in Psalm 51 and we'll follow up on David's story. What a great psalm this is. For people like us, I always say for people like us, sometimes we look at the scripture and we can go, wow, that is just, those are the, those are the men and women of the Bible. I couldn't live that way. But then God gives us these stories like David to go, wait a second, he's an adulterer, he's a murderer, he's a conniver? Wow, wow. I guess God is a pretty awesome God and he can forgive and he wants to forgive and he makes those stories for us to see. David's repentance through Psalm 51 is a wonderful roadmap anytime that you've had a regret in your life and you go, God, I need some help here. Just flip open to Psalm 51. A couple of key pieces here, guys. Verse number three says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Do you think David's had some repentance taking place before he wrote this psalm? Oh, yeah, exclamation point. Absolutely. And just in case you're not clear yet on his repentance, take a look in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear gladness and joy that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. As you've heard the stories about David and a man after God's own heart, here it is again. He wants that restoration. He has repented. He's confessed and God is a great God of forgiveness. You might be sitting here today, my friend, and saying, yeah, I can hear that, um, this whole forgiveness idea. I've forgiven people in my life, but you know what? You don't know what happened to me with this situation here. I will never forgive so-and-so. They hurt me so badly, I just... I just can't. And if you heard my story, you'd probably understand. I want you to listen to a story for a few minutes. It's the story of a woman who lived a few years back during the Nazi regime. Her name was Corrie Ten Boom. Maybe some of you have read her story. It's one of the most powerful stories I've ever found about forgiveness. And if you hold something like a woman came up to me after our first service today and said, I've never heard that story before, and I'm looking at forgiveness now with an individual in my life that I haven't forgiven. Listen to Corey's story, guys. Corey Tenboom was arrested for hiding Dutch Jews from the Nazis and survived the horrors of a concentration camp to astonish the world by forgiving her tormentors. In mid-May 1945, the Allies marched into Holland to the unspeakable joy of the Dutch people. Despite the distractions of her work, Corey was still restless, 
and she desperately missed her beloved sister Betsy. But now she remembered Betsy's words, that they must tell others what they had learned. Corey spent more than three decades of travel around the world speaking of her experiences. She told people her story of God's forgiveness of sins and of the need for people to forgive those who had harmed them. Corey herself was put to the test in 1947 while speaking in a Munich church. At the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corey froze. She knew this man well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrock, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. It came back with a rush, she wrote. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now he was pushing his hand out to shake hers and saying, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrock in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Cora to shake his hand. She wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Is that a powerful story? It's one of my top five stories of all time when it comes to the power that can come, guys, through forgiveness. Just a human being, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, what can he do? Well, what if you knew? We're going to switch gears for a moment. What if you knew when you passed away what that you would actually look back on and regret? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? It's like, that'd be, that'd be nice. I'd avoid it then, right? Well, I got news for you today. 
I don't know when you're going to die. So don't look like, what? You're going to tell me when I'm going to die? No, I don't know when you're going to die. But I do have some notes. And actually, a book was written about people at the end of their days. What did they regret most? The author, her name is Bronnie Ware. And she was a palliative nurse. She took care of people who were at the end of their life for years. And she journaled and wrote, what were some of those things that people regretted on their deathbeds? Like, whoa, this could be good. I should see all of you picking up your pens, getting ready to take some notes because I'm going to give you the five right now, okay? Here's the first one. She said, I heard this over and over and over. I wish I had the courage to live the life true to myself and not what others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard and lost time with my family. Every single man that she treated said those words. Guys, I hope you heard that. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Many people suppress their feelings in order to keep the peace with others. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with friends. Relationships and love become most important when one is dying. And number five, this has got to be my favorite, I wish I had let myself be happier. Don't get stuck in old patterns and habits, guys. I'm sure you've seen this. I need you all to look up here for a moment. I'm going to stand as clearly as I can on the lights. I'm sure you've seen this. I might be driving around. I pull up next to somebody. I might be in church after we're done here today talking to somebody. You know what I call that? It's called a permafrown. You're not happy. Why not? Here's a regret from people who've gone before you. I wish, I wish, I wish I'd let myself be happier. That just means this. Smile more, please. Okay, I'm walking through Publix, and I, I, I love to surprise people with this. I don't even know who they are. They're walking up to me, we make eye contact, and I just go. And they look at me like, do I know you? Or I'm like, no, it's nice. I'm, I'm happy. I'm good, good to see you. And you know what they do back? Usually they smile. Sometimes I'll go, get away from that guy. <laughs> wow. Try it. Be happier. The last time I checked God's word, it says rejoice always. Well, wait a second. You don't know, you don't know what's going on in my life. <laughs> Trust me, there's lots of yucky stuff that happens to everybody. But we have a great hope right? That we look forward to that should make us smile. All right, we're going to bring the plane in for a landing, but I need to give you a disclaimer. Because some of you here today might be saying, I can't wait to tell Pastor Steve, Doug told me to have no regrets. So I'm going to go out and empty my savings account, and I'm going to play the Powerball until I get a million bucks that I can give some back to the church. <laughs> Don't do that, Okay. Um, I had one that I think back to in the days of my younger years. My father's car had a speedometer. The speedometer went up to 120 miles per hour on this particular vehicle, and I thought, why not? wonder what it's like to go 120 miles per hour in someone's car. I don't want to have any regrets. So, of course, 
Yes, I was stupid again at 18. I, I did that. It's not something that I'm proud of. So here's your disclaimer, guys. Philippians chapter 2. I'm being serious now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. As you think about things and God brings things to mind for you to go after so you don't have regrets, it says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. So in other words, if that's going to hurt somebody, don't do it. If it's going to put somebody out, don't do it. Okay, those are not the types of regrets I'm talking about. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So how do we have a life, guys, of no regrets? The last time I had the opportunity to speak with you, I, I shared with you, if you remember, that this book, I believe, was the first Facebook. A lot of you spend hours and hours and hours on Facebook, and you don't spend time in this book, or enough time. So get your face in this book, and that's going to help you to live a life of no regrets. Because how do you know the instruction book if you don't read it? Right? All right. So as you think about knowing the field manual better, there's a great verse, Psalm 119.11. It says, I have hidden your words in my heart that I might not sin against thee, that I might not have regrets. But if you don't read it, you don't know it, and you're going to have regrets. So read the book, please. Surround yourself with wise counselors and friends. I had an opportunity back in 2009 after the Great Recession in Florida to start a company. And I have a family of six. How many of you know starting a company in the recession is not a great idea? <laughs> Pretty much everybody. So I had this thing going on in my heart. I was like, Lord, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this the path I'm supposed to take? And I surrounded myself with wise counsel. I didn't do this on my own. God was prompting me and really going, this is what you need to be doing. Well, I'm going to ask. And I did. I sought wise counsel and got the counsel. Move ahead. Go. So please surround yourself with wise counsel to help avoid regrets in your life. I want to share with you a story as we wrap up today about regrets. And my friend Chris shared this with me a couple weeks ago. It's the story of William Borden, and you're going to see his picture up here, and you might go, I don't know who this guy is. I'm going to bet you you've probably had some of his milk. <laughs> his family is the Borden family who, you know, the Borden milk, the Borden dairy products, kind of a big company. They produce 500 million gallons of milk every single year just in the United States. So you can imagine, born in 1887, this cat's got it made, right? He's an instant millionaire. So he comes into life with a silver spoon in his mouth, but God had a different plan. His mother was a Christ follower. She led him to Christ at an early age. And the wonderful gift he got for his graduation was his parents bought for him a world cruise that he could go all the way around the world and enjoy the world. God began to work on him, and as he began to see the need around the world of other people and other hurting people, he began to say, I want to be a difference maker. I want to be a missionary. He came home and told his parents, and his father said, if you become a missionary, you will not get any Borden money. He goes 
took college guys and he went to Yale University and he began to look at what do I need to get educated in and get educated to do. He chose China and the Muslim people of China to be a missionary. Despite what his father said, he was going to be going to the mission field and ministering to the Muslims in China. Getting his education at Yale, he went, in his first year as a freshman at Yale, he gathered together students that said, the answers don't come through philosophy. The answers don't come through our knowledge and our education. The answers come through knowing Jesus and his word. He got together 150 students in his freshman year, and they prayed and studied the Bible every week together at Yale University. By his senior year, William had gathered 1,000 students on a weekly basis out of 1,300 to gather for prayer and Bible study at Yale University. William was a man driven by Christ and his Holy Spirit. So he went after his graduation and sailed to Egypt first. He went to Egypt because he wanted to find out the culture of the Muslim people. As he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at 25 one month later. The headlines screamed back in the United States, William Borden wasted life. God had other plans. Young students saw that headline and they began to sell everything they had and become missionaries to the most unreached people groups of the world because they said, if William can give up everything he had to serve Jesus, I'm going to do the same. At his funeral, they pulled out his Bible and they found three phrases in the back of his Bible. No retreats, no reserves, and no regrets. No retreats, no reserves, and no regrets. I pray, friend, that you take that today. And maybe today for you, it's that forgiveness issue you need to think about. Don't have regrets when it comes to forgiveness. Maybe it's that job you've been thinking of. Hmm, Lord, are you directing me and guiding me? Surround me with counsel. I don't want to have regrets. Maybe we saw early on the daughter and the mother who at the very beginning of our message today, she shared, I wish I had been kinder to my daughter. Maybe you've got a, a son or daughter that you don't want to have regrets with. Please don't leave today without taking that up with God and then take action on what that might look like for you. No retreats, no reserves, no regrets. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're humbled today to open up your word and be in a country where we can do that freely. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of forgiveness, Lord, which comes through Jesus and his great work on the cross on our behalf that we did not deserve. And he conquered sin and death by rising from the dead. And as we embrace that today, we can have that forgiveness, not just for ourselves, but also for others. Lord, stir our minds and hearts. Who do we need to be attuned and attending to today? 
that needs forgiveness. Lord, I pray for those today that may need to take a step of faith into something that's really for them very intimidating, maybe reaching out to a neighbor for the first time and sharing Christ. Pray that they don't have regrets, Lord. Give them your faith. Give them your boldness. Give them your power. God, I pray for this team of people here today that you just continue to have your way, do your work in us and through us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.